please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture this morning, uh, Matthew 18 and then the passage we read in our Scripture reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're continuing our series on church membership this morning, and we have, uh, including this one, I think four messages left. Uh, the discipline uh, and its relationship, church discipline, its relationship to church membership. Uh, next week, Lord willing, the ordinances and their relationship to church membership, and then uh, deacons, and then we'll finish off with the duties of church membership, and uh, I'll share a, g- a good deal of what's on my heart in that, uh, in that particular sermon. But this morning, uh, touching on the matter of church discipline and its relationship to church membership. So let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 18. We'll start in verse 15, we'll read down to verse 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven." For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray together. Father, as we've just spoken, uh, or as we've just sung together, we are in desperate need of you uh, every hour of every day, that by your grace we might ever more endure the hardships and challenges of this life. And Lord, we need you in this hour to understand uh, the scriptures that are before us, and not just understand them as if this is just an interesting talk on a topic, but to understand them and be impressed with the significance of what your word says, so that we we might better understand what it means to follow you and better live in obedience. So we ask for your help, and uh, without it, we are, our, our attempts at understanding the word and our attempts at uh, walking in obedience are, are just vain uh, if we are not casting ourselves on you for for our dependence on you. So help us, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. So church discipline and how it relates to church membership. Um, so we have uh, spoken a lot in the last few weeks about the role of the congregation to govern the affairs of the life of the church and how important it is for every member to own their responsibility, uh, particularly weighing in on things like defining the membership of who's in and out of the local church and selecting their leaders and defending what the church believes. These are all responsibilities of the congregation. And that, as we noted, only goes as well as the church is healthy. 
and practices careful membership. And so the relationship between church discipline and church membership is, is, goes something like this. Um, church discipline answers for us the question or, or helps us with the scenario where what do you do if someone professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they've been baptized, uh, they give evidence of following Christ in their walk, and then they, be, they become a member of, of the local church. But then after a period of time, it becomes evident that uh, their life does not match their profession, and they become, begin to walk in unrepentant sin, and yet they're part of the membership and they're responsible for weighing in on these really important decisions about defining the membership and defending the gospel and selecting leaders, and yet they're not people who are genuinely converted and not people who are uh, following the Spirit at all in their lives. So, so how does the church maintain its, its purity, right? If they're to govern the affairs of, their, of, their, of, the, of the life of the church, then, they, then it's important that the church membership be pure. And the Lord has given the church the vehicle of church discipline in order that we might maintain a pure congregation. And so that's the relationship this morning between discipline and membership. And as we unpack these truths, I hope you, you understand that the, this morning. Now, if you're visiting with us and perhaps maybe just an interested observer in Christianity, I hope the sermon doesn't scandalize you this morning. Uh, I hope you're not sitting there thinking, uh, church discipline, what have I just gotten myself into, right? Are the doors about to lock and the, the lights about to, to go out and then it's about to get crazy in here? Um, I, I hope not. Um, that, would, that would be a little weird. Um, in fact, I hope for just the opposite. I hope that this sermon helps clarify for you the essence and, and meaning of Christianity and I hope that you then begin to see from these passages that we'll consider the importance of Christians living in obedience to the things they believe. Okay, and so I hope as we talk about these things, rather than being scandalized, you actually gain a level of clarity about why Christians make such a big deal about walking in obedience. Now, if I was going to give sort of an underlying foundational truth to to this series or to this sermon this morning, or a, a really important thing to say before we go any further, it would be this, that as we approach this topic of church discipline, we need to be clear that church discipline, it only works in a context where church members believe that they are responsible for the spiritual well-being of their fellow members. Okay, just, just think on that particular thought. As, as before we say anything else going forward, that church discipline, it only works in a context where church members are convinced of this fact, that they are responsible for the spiritual well-being of their fellow church members. If we're not convinced there, then, then church discipline will be almost impossible to enact and, and, and follow the scriptures and, and what they say about it. Okay? So we have to start there. And I think the sermon series leading up to this has established that fact that we are responsible for the spiritual well-being of one another. In fact, the scriptures make this clear, right? At the end of James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from, the wandering, from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Or Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Okay, so, so we have these instructions in Scripture of our responsibility to our fellow members in, in, in the body of Christ. And there's really two realities here, right? So, so the reality is that at, at any time, you and I could be ones who wander from the faith, right? We sing these words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And that's just the reality. As much as we'd like to, to conceal that truth, you and I are prone to wander. And so what we need is we need the, the accountability of the body of, of Christ. And the other reality is that those around us are prone to wander, and it's our duty to, to call them back when, when that is the case. And so this reality sort of underlies everything we're going to say about church discipline moving forward. So now let's, let's then get into our study of church discipline. I think it's safe to say that church discipline has gone terribly out of vogue in the modern church. And if it's practiced at all, it's usually seen as something that's an exception to the norm in church life. It's maybe described as a a rare and desperate procedure to be used only in the most of extreme circumstances. And many Christians and evangelical churches have never seen church discipline practiced or invoked. And quite frankly, many Christians would be unsettled by such a practice if it were revived today. One of the reasons for this is that many Christians prefer an individual or private, even anonymous expression of religion, free from the accountability of the church, They want a church where they can show up on Sunday, where the lights are dimmed, and they can observe the worship, and then they can return home. A place where their faith is simply between them and God. A second reason why church discipline has or would would unsettle many believers is because for many believers, tolerance is seen as the supreme mark of love. And the thought of approaching someone in their sin and calling them to repentance, well, it just seems unloving. It seems like the kind of thing that should be avoided. After all, who are we to judge? But ignoring sin and ignoring the practice of church discipline is, first of all, ruinously unloving to the undisciplined sinner. It allows them to continue in their sins without being warned. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this famous quote, Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. I think he's absolutely right. But ignoring sin and ignoring church discipline is not only ruinously unloving to the undisciplined sinner, but it's also crippling to the Christian witness. Individuals are allowed to continue in sin and simultaneously represent Christ, giving the world the impression that Christians are hypocrites. And so why would anyone want to bother with Christianity if Christians don't act like Christians? 
But thirdly, avoiding church discipline is destructive to the health of the church. For where sin is tolerated, the church will implode from within. So church discipline, I hope you'll see this morning, and to argue from these scriptures is of utmost importance in order to maintain a pure church and in order to protect the testimony of Christ. So we can't ignore the practice, even if it's gone out of style, and even if it's not cool. Okay, it's still important for us to follow the scriptures in this way. So as we work through our study this morning, I want to I ask four questions and, and unpack it from, from that the responsibility of confrontation does not rest alone with the person who sinned. See, we like to think about this issue in terms of, or, or confrontation over sin or reconciliation. We like to think about the 60-40 rule. Okay, so a conflict happens and and so-and-so is the other person's 60% at fault. We're only 40% at fault. Thus, the responsibility goes to them, because they have the greater percentage, to, to, to move toward reconciliation. And we're, we're content in this, as long as our percentages are, are lower, right? But that's not what Jesus says here. Because uh, we tend to think this way, but what Jesus says is, if your brother sins against you, you go to him and tell him his fault. So even if you're in the 40%, you have the responsibility to move toward reconciliation. I think what Jesus would argue is wherever there's sin, whether you are the offending party or the offended party, we should move toward reconciliation because it honors Christ. Now, when the first step of discipline is practiced, Lord willing, as he says here in verse 15, the brother listens and you've gained your brother, and that's the end of the process. But if not, Jesus moves on to the second step in verse 16. He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, we might call this step in church discipline private conference. Okay? As a general rule, when, when conflict occurs... We want to work to keep the circle of knowledge as small as we can. Okay, we don't want to spread it throughout the, the body of Christ that so-and-so has sinned against me. So we want to work to keep the circle of knowledge as small as we can. But, he says here, if a brother or sister will not repent and restore, the next step involves bringing one or two others along. And the text here calls them witnesses. And it doesn't necessarily indicate that witnesses have to be witnesses to the sin, but witnesses to the, to the conversation, witnesses to the, to, the, to the unrepentance of this other individual. Now, witnesses can, can prove immensely helpful in these circumstances, right? In some cases, it may be that the witnesses conclude, you know, this really isn't a significant matter, and we should probably just move on from this. In, in other cases, witnesses might help us bring resolution to the, to the conflict, which is often the case. But in the, some cases... The witnesses may conclude that, yeah, this person is indeed unrepentant of their sin, and in such cases, the matter then moves to step three. Well, notice step three here in verse 17, and just notice the first portion of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, right, to, to the witnesses, tell it to the church, Jesus says. Okay, so now this is important because we have to say this. If you're if your opponent or the person who sinned against you is unrepentant, if they are a member of your church. In other words, they've promised to 
regularly assemble and bring themselves under the accountability of that church, and they refuse to listen to these reconcilers, then, then the matter is to be told to the church. It's brought to the church body. And the goal of this step is to allow the church as a whole to call this individual back to repentance, to warn them of the error of their way. Not to do this in a spirit of confrontation, but in love seeking to win the sinner back to Christ. But if, after a period of time, the sinner does not repent of his sin, then the church should move to step number four, which is the, fourth, the process of of excommunication. Notice verse 17 again, the second portion. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the final step in church discipline is to set the individual outside the member of the church. Now there's an important word in verse 17, and I want you to see it. Jesus uses the word as. And his word as is significant. He says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And we have to say this. He uses the word as there because only God can know the heart of an individual. Only God can know whether someone's a true believer or not. The church has no power to to say whether someone is or is not a believer. So the church is only called to make a functional decision about a person. That if they're persisting, and living in unrepentant sin, then the church makes a functional decision. We can't recognize you as a believer, but ultimately, it's the Lord who determines the condition of the heart, or who knows the condition of the heart. Okay, now remember, we've said this in our, in our earlier studies, when we bring someone into membership, here's what we're saying. We're saying, as best as we can tell, based on your profession of faith, and best, uh, best we can tell on your, on, your, on your walk of obedience, that we recognize you to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ and we accept you into our membership. The church at that point is making an an assessment or, or a judgment. But when we remove someone, here's what we're saying. As best as we can tell, based on maybe a lack of clarity in your profession of faith or, or based on a life of disobedience that you're living, we can't put our stamp of approval or affirm your testimony of faith, or that you're a genuine follower of Christ. And at that point, the church then removes the individual, and to them they become a Gentile or a tax collector or an unbeliever set outside the membership. Now, we'll come to this question in a minute of then how should the church relate to the disciplined sinner? But for now, let's, let's pause here and let's skip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to consider the second passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the passage we read in our scripture reading. And the, the second main, main passage in the church, in church discipline discussions. So if Jesus lays out the principles in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5 gives us a real-life case or real-life example. And we won't take the time to read the passage because we've already done so, but here we have a situation where a man is in an immoral relationship with his father's wife. We see that in verse 1. And the wording of the text indicates that it's probably not his own mother, but maybe a stepmother. And we're not told whether the father is still alive or if they're still married, but the immorality of the relationship is clear nonetheless. And there's an issue here in verse 2. The Corinthian church is 
proud of this immorality, or they're, they're arrogant, Paul says. Which, when I read that, I think, well, that, that's strange, okay? Um, and it's tough to know exactly why they were arrogant or why they were proud. Perhaps uh, this was an expression of antinomianism, that, that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so praise the Lord, this is an opportunity for God's grace to be displayed. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Or perhaps they thought that tolerance was the supreme expression of love, and therefore they were being loving by tolerating this sinner in their midst. So it's hard to know exactly what's going on in their minds. But whatever the case, the immorality is known, and it was accepted in the Corinthian church. They had failed to do anything about it. So as you move into verses 4 and 5, Paul gives instructions to the gathered church. And notice he doesn't give instructions to the the pastors or to the deacons, but to the whole assembly. When you're gathered, he says, verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, they're to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector, as an unbeliever. And what they're doing here when it says delivering him over to Satan is they're removing the accountability of the church and allowing the sinner to pursue his, his own course of action with the hope that he wakes up and comes to his senses and realizes this is not the life that I want, and he returns to Christ, and that his soul is saved in the day of the Lord. Now, before moving on in our discussion, we need to clarify something here. There is an obvious difference between the four-step process that Jesus explains, and the, the one-step process that Paul gives. So what are we to make of this difference? Why, is there, why are there four steps in one passage and one step in the other? Well, I think it seems best to say this, that Paul's one-step process, okay, deliver him to Satan, begins at the end of Jesus' process. Okay, so you might say it this way. In Jesus' four-step process in Matthew 18, the early stages are designed to establish that the individual is unrepentant. So you go through step one and step two and step three, and we confirm, yes, the individual won't heed our our warnings, and we have to deliver him over to Satan. But in 1 Corinthians 5, the unrepentance is already established. Okay? In essence, it seems like they've already gone through these steps to a degree or that everybody recognizes this. And the only step remaining for this individual is to remove the unrepentant sinner. Now, we'll pause there because these are the primary passages on the practice of church discipline. And so our first question, okay, what are the, what are the passages or where do we find in the New Testament? Here is where we found it. Now, moving on to our second question, we want to sort of unpack the meaning and and some other aspects of church discipline. So question number two is this. What is the purpose of church discipline? If you can stay in 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to highlight some of the things in in this passage. But but what is the purpose of church discipline? Like if you were going to reduce church discipline down to a single word, what word would you use to describe the process? Well, if we could reduce church discipline down to a single word, it would be the word purity. The word purity. In in church discipline, the church is pursuing the goal of purity. 
But now understand this. The pursuit of purity through the means of church discipline, there are sort of two levels to it, or, or two steps. Okay? First, the goal is to purify the individual from his sin. And only when that fails do we move to the second aspect of purity, where we then have to purify the congregation of this sinner. Okay, so, so the goal is purity, but then there's two aspects to this purity. There's an individual purpose and, and a corporate purpose in church discipline. So l- let me just show us this from Scripture, um, that individual and then, and then corporate, okay? So individually, church discipline is designed to purify the unrepentant sinner and to restore him to communion with the body. So this is what Jesus says, right? He says at the end of step one, he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother, okay? You've purified him from his sin, and you have gained your brother. And that's the intended first goal in, in church discipline, right? And I assume the same is true, right? If the two or three witnesses come along and, you, and, and he repents, then Jesus would say, say the same thing. You've, you've gained your brother, okay? Even in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5 here, you see that the end goal is still, still the individual's purity, He says, deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's this desire that even once we deliver the sinner over to the world, that he would see the error of his way and and purify himself from sin and and come back to the Lord. Okay, so the the first goal in church discipline is, is purity. Now notice it's not punitive in nature, it's purifying in nature. It's designed to make the sinner consider the horror of his condition and to consequently purify himself. Like he should be sober by the fact that there's a congregation of people saying, you need to repent, and he should come to his senses and return. But then there's, secondly, there's the corporate element of purity. Okay? When the sinner won't listen, the church discipline is designed to, to purify the sin from the congregation. And this is really for two purposes, to preserve the testimony and to preserve the purity of the church. Now, now notice those two things, okay? That when, a, when an unrepentant sinner is allowed to continue in the church unrebuked, those two things are at stake, the testimony of Christ and the purity of the church. So notice, verses, notice verse 1 again when he says this in 1 Corinthians 5 there, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and notice the next phrase, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. What a rebuke, right? Even the outside world looks at what's taking place in the church at Corinth, and they're going, yeah, that's, that is weird. That is bad. That is not good. Like, even the unbelievers don't tolerate this, and you're tolerating this. So think about what this does to the testimony of Christ to an unbelieving world. See, the Christian community is to be set apart in such a way that when we speak the truth, our lives do not contradict the message that we proclaim. Right? Peter said this. He said, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you. And do it with gentleness and respect so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay? So that when people slander you, they should be, they should be put to shame because your testimony is so upright. Okay? So it's so important to preserve the testimony of Christ. Now just think about how this plays out in our modern day. It seems like every few weeks or every few months, there is a new scandal that hits the news involving some professing Christian. Right? And I don't even watch the news, and I'm like aware of these, of these things. Okay? Some, some, some scandal takes place, and even the world looks at that, and they say, well, that, that shouldn't happen. And especially that shouldn't happen if they're Christians because they're held to a higher standard. They claim to believe this, but then they're living hypocritically. So what church discipline gives the church the opportunity to do is to say, that is not Christianity. Now, regardless of whether the world tunes in to what the church says about that, in individual congregations, when they remove members from, from, from their church for living in unrepentant sin, they're making a statement to the world to say, that is not what Christianity is. And Lord willing, protect the church from ruining the testimony of Christ. Okay, so the testimony is at stake in church discipline, but also notice that the purity of the church is at stake in church discipline. Okay, skip down to verses 6 and 7. He says this, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Okay, this sin being tolerated in, in the congregation was have a damaging effect on the purity of the church. It was affecting the entire congregation. Just like a little leaven affects the whole lump, so a little bit of sin is able to infect the, uh, affect the entirety of the body. You have to pardon this illustration. I know I use this one a lot, but, but it's, it's one of my favorite expressions. My wife and I will be driving through the parking lot, right, and we'll be looking for a parking spot, and then there will be one car just parked crookedly, and then all the other cars next to it, they have to park crookedly because that guy parked crookedly, right? And so in my pastoral voice, I'll say something like, yep, parking is like sin. It affects other people, right? And that's the, the principle here, that when sin is, is tolerated in the congregation, it never stays with just that sinner. But it, it has the ability to affect and impact the whole congregation. So the purity of the church is at stake. That's why Paul says, remove this individual so that you can be a, a, a clean lump without leaven. Now, question number three. Question number three. And it's at this point you start to get into some of the challenges or the weeds of, of discipline. Question three, what is the occasion for church discipline? What is the occasion for church discipline? Anytime you think about church discipline, this question naturally comes up. For what sins is the church to discipline? And I think today, church discipline is typically reserved for those who commit the most egregious sins. Murder, or public drunkenness, or public immorality, when the list could go on. But historically, the church has been active in disciplining those who omit their Christian responsibilities as well. So just an example of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul instructs the church regarding those who are idle in the church. 
And he says, if, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. But then he goes on and he says this, if anyone does not obey what he says, have nothing to do with him. Okay, there's a, there's a church discipline being enacted, enacted on an individual who is merely lazy. Okay, omitting his Christian responsibility. Now notice Jesus' words, you don't have to turn there, but remember them. In Matthew 18, we see that discipline is not enacted because of the severity of the sin, but because of the failure to repent. Jesus says, right, go to your brother, tell him his sin. If he listened, you've gained your brother. But if, if he doesn't repent, then you must continue in the process. So in Matthew 18, the, the church discipline is not so much for the heaviness or the significance of the sin, but for a failure to repent from the sin. So I think we see this principle then, that church discipline is not simply for egregious sins alone, but can be exercised on a failure to do what we ought to do. So church discipline in, in most cases rests so, not so much on the sin itself, but on a failure to repent from sin. Now, I think a helpful illustration is to think about it in two different scales. Okay, two different scales. Uh, think about this. On the one hand, you have a, a bathroom scale where you, you step on it to know how heavy something is. And on the other hand, you have a, a balance scale where you weigh one thing against, against the other. Now, commonly, church discipline, I think, is thought of in terms of the bathroom scale. Like if it's a particular, particularly heavy sin or it's especially egregious then we enact church discipline. But church discipline should not be enacted based simply on the nature of the sin, but really in comparison to this, this second scale of, of, of balancing it. right? Because I, I think we would recognize this. Two Christians in the same church could commit the, the same exact sin, and it could be egregious. And in one case, it moved toward church discipline, but in another case, it, it not, because one individual is repentant and the other individual is, is not. So it's not necessarily about the egregious nature of the sin. Okay? Think of the second type of scale. In the second scale, you're weighing two things against each other. Okay? You're weighing the sin of the individual against the, the repentance of the individual. Okay? And you're asking what is the overall posture of this repentance? Do they simply say that they are repentant or do they demonstrate, as John the Baptist says, the fruits of repentance? Does the posture of the repentance outweigh the sin that is committed? Now, admittedly, this can be very, very difficult, right? To, to, and it's to tell the genuineness of, of repentance. And I think that's why in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul begins to talk about how there's a there's, a, there's a, a worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to grief and change, and there's a godly sorrow that leads to, to grief and change because he's helping them distinguish between real, genuine repentance and, and, and false repentance. But as you're thinking through these things, I think some of these kinds of questions are, are helpful. Does the sinner admit his actions were wrong? Does he seem genuinely grieved over his sin? Or is there a tone of annoyance in his confession? 
Did he quickly confess, or did we have to drag the information out of him? Was he immediately forthcoming with all of his sins, or did we have to dig them out one by one? Is it likely that he's still hiding information? Is this a pattern or a characteristic? Is he inviting correction into his life? Is he welcoming counsel for how to fight against the sin, or does he reject counsel, convinced that he knows best how to deal with it? As we discuss his sin, does it feel like he's standing on our side against the sin, or is he defensive? In other words, is he saying, yeah, you're probably right, it's awful, what should I do? I'm sorry, is he saying, yeah, you're absolutely right, it's awful, what should I do? Or is he saying, yeah, well, it's fine, we'll see, no big deal. Now, it might not be that, that any one of these answers leads the church to move toward discipline, but a number of these factors together would help indicate the level of the genuineness of one's repentance. Now, at this point, it might be helpful for me to just stop and say this, that the scriptures are, are clear about the practice of church discipline. They're clear about the importance of church discipline. But when it comes to individual cases of church discipline, in other words, where the rubber meets the road and you're dealing with real-life situations, they can be very complex. And sometimes it takes a lot of prayer and a lot of wisdom and a lot of discussion to know whether a church should move forward in a particular instance of church discipline. And so I think the church always needs to recognize that fact that, yeah, the Scriptures are are clear-cut, but when we sometimes get into the weeds and our knowledge is sometimes limited, that that individual cases of church discipline can be very difficult and complex to think through. So that's the occasion for church discipline. Let's move now to our our last point. Our last question, how should the church relate to the disciplined sinner? Okay, how should the church relate to the disciplined sinner? And this is probably one of the, one area where members don't fully have a, a good answer in, in thinking through these things, or maybe we're a little bit ignorant to some of, the, some of these principles, okay? So how should the church relate to the disciplined sinner? Well, Jesus says in, in Matthew eighteen seventeen, he says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, what's he saying there? Well, the relationship is no longer believer to believer, but now it becomes an evangelistic relationship where the individual is outside the body of Christ and must be one to Christ. Now, you're here in, ver- in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Notice what Paul says and how he, sa- how he articulates this. He says, I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of the world. And maybe they misunderstood Paul, and they were like, okay, we need to just cut off all contact from anyone who's sexually immoral. But then Paul says, no, because then you would need to go out of the world. Okay, That's not what I'm saying. He says, I'm, I'm writing to you, and he says this, not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother and is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. I think the emphasis here is is unrepentant sexual immorality or greed. Or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. And then he says this, not even to eat, not even to eat 
with such a one. Okay, and I think Paul's really, really clear here about the importance of distinguishing and defining the relationship between members of a church and a disciplined sinner. In other words, we might say this. The church and the members of the church should not pretend that things are all right with people who claim to be followers of Christ and yet won't listen to the scriptures or how God is speaking through his church. Treating unrepentant people as unbelievers is sometimes the only way to help them understand the seriousness of their sin. Like, yeah, it seems unloving to, to, to cut off that relationship. Seems unloving to, to remove them from the church. But sometimes it's the only way to help people understand the seriousness of their sin. Now, practically speaking, we should not interact with someone in a superficial way who has been disciplined from the church. This is what Paul means here when he says not to associate with someone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of these things. And he, Paul says not even to eat with such a one. Now, there's a question as to does Paul mean here a casual meal or does Paul here have in mind the Lord's table? Okay. That, that when a member is disciplined from, from the church, that they're not welcome to the Lord's table to observe it with the body of believers. And it's probably that Paul has in mind both. Okay? Both a casual meal that sends a, a, a message or coming to the table especially and observing the Lord's table as they live in unrepentant sin. Because what we don't want to do is send the wrong message to say that your unrepentance is no big deal. Because that is a very dangerous message to send to an unrepentant sinner. I mean, think about if you were having a relationship with your, or in a relationship with your, just your, your neighbor who doesn't know Christ. You wouldn't want to send the message to him that his unrepentance is, is no big deal. And you would not want to do the same for a believer who is hardened in sin and disciplined out of the church. Now, we've covered a lot in this, uh, in this time, in this study, in these passages. So now let's unpack some, some points of application. Okay. Remember this foundational principle, and if you walk away remembering this, that everything we've said here only works in a context where believers are convinced that they have the responsibility to watch over the spiritual life of one another. Okay, it's that foundation that must inform everything we've said here. But as we consider these truths, let me note a few things. First of all, you cannot fulfill what the Scriptures call us to do here in these passages without being a member of a local church. Okay, God reconciles us to himself, and he reconciles us to a group of people, and we're to live out our Christian life with one another. And part of that responsibility is to be a member of a local church. And, and one question we have to consider is this. If you're not a member of a local church, and you start to drift into unrepentant sin, who's coming after you? Who's holding you accountable? 
Okay, well, maybe like a, a loving aunt or some Christian relative, they're coming after you. But that's not how the Lord has designed things. That we're to live within the accountability of the body. And that if we start to drift into sin, that there's a membership and, and church leaders who say, man, you can't live like this. You have to turn and come back and honor Christ. But if you're not a member, then you set, your side, set yourself outside of the accountability that God has established as a good thing for your life. Okay, you, you need it, and I need it. We need this accountability of, of membership. But secondly, you can't fulfill all the Scripture's calls to do if you're the type of member who fails to maintain meaningful connections with the members of the church. In other words, if you're a casual membership, or if you're a casual member, and you're not intimately connected with the life of the church and the people of the church, then you're going to have a hard time living these things out. Like, yes, it's good to come on Sunday for an hour and a half, but the Lord calls us to so much more. Okay? He calls us to watch out for one another and to stimulate one another to love and good works and to have these relationships so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, so we have to be members who are, are highly involved and highly related to our fellow members for these things to work. Now, lastly, I think we'll just say this in application is this. We cannot underestimate the importance of church discipline. Now, notice, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just I'll read the phrase for you. Notice how Jesus finishes his instructions. He gives this instruction about church discipline. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Now you're like, wait a minute. I thought that verse had to do, about, had to do with prayer meetings. Right? As long as there's two or three with us, then, then Jesus is, is there as well. Well, it's true. Okay? Jesus is with you if two or three are gathered in prayer. But that's not the context of Jesus' statement or when when he's presenting this to his disciples. That's not the context. He's saying when discipline happens or when the church takes sin seriously, I am there present with you. Or as one author says it like this, when church discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. When a church fails to take seriously the sin of others and disciplines, then Christ's presence is absent. So as we consider these truths, I was just this. May God give us the grace to watch out for one another and the intestinal fortitude to confront one another in our sins. And may God give us the humility and tenderness to receive the rebukes in our life when they are given and needed. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word and its clarity and its authority. One of the breakdowns that probably takes place in our life is a failure to live under the authority of your words. We have our default tendencies and we fail to to pursue 
biblical reconciliation the way you have laid it out. And this happens not just in church discipline situations, but it happens in lots of interpersonal relationships. So would you convince us this morning of the importance of, of the word in our lives, particularly in these matters of sin and conflict with, with brothers and sisters in Christ? And Lord, may you develop in our church a, a culture where we're convinced that we have the responsibility to oversee one another's walk, to encourage, to love and good works, to, to watch out, to protect. Lord, may we take that responsibility seriously. May we be convinced of it so that when we do have to practice situations of discipline in our membership, that we are, have a good foundation in place because there's already this assumption that, that we have the responsibility to care for our members in this way. So would you continue to help us sure up that foundation so that we can be a church where you are present and alive and active in our midst? That's our goal and our desire. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.